Haitians carry a giant cross around the island today, Wednesday, January 16th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Islamist militants attack a natural gas facility in Algeria. They're holding hostages from many different countries, including the United States. This is a crisis, but it's involving a large number of governments. So the pressure on the Algerians is coming from many, many sides over this. Also today, the view from Russia on gun control and the oral histories of Vietnamese immigrants. Is there anything you miss from Vietnam? Oh, yes. I really miss the durian fruit. Yep. It's the specky fruit, right? Yes, 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 yes. It's a smelly one. <laughs> Those stories coming up on The World. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Islamist militants today attacked a natural gas facility in Algeria, and they took many hostages of many different nationalities. U.S. officials have confirmed that some of those being held are American. The facility that was attacked is part of a joint venture involving oil giant BP. Algeria's state news agency reported that two people were killed in the attack, including at least one foreigner and six others wounded. BBC Arab Affairs editor Sebastian Usher says the attack is an international crisis in the making. This was an attack staged by Islamic militants on a gas facility which is in the east of Algeria, which is operated by BP, by the Algerian state oil company, and by a Norwegian company as well, Statoil, and there's a Japanese company which also works there. So the potential for a variety of nationalities to be caught up in this was always there, and that's how it seems things have now gone. The militants came in in the early hours of this morning. The Algerian state news agency said they were in three vehicles. They appear to have tried to take hostages from a bus which was taking employees away from the site. That seems to have failed in some way and then then moved on to the buildings on the site. Tell us about this Islamist group that has claimed responsibility. What have they demanded? It's called the Mass Brigade, and it's an offshoot of a group called Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, which started in Algeria about 15 years ago and has morphed into an Al-Qaeda affiliate in the past few years. They, at the moment, are involved in what's happening in Mali, which neighbours Algeria. Islamist groups there had threatened revenge attacks in the region when France launched its intervention against the Islamist militants there last week, and that's obviously an ongoing operation now. Mm. Now, this group, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, was confronted by the Algerian forces and was pretty much defeated in the areas that it was holding in the main part of Algeria. They moved down south and they now cross the borders of the Sahara. What is surprising about this attack is that even in the civil war in Algeria, which went on all through the 90s and up to 200,000 people are reported to have been killed, the Algerian security forces pretty much managed to maintain a tight lid on what mattered to the most, which was the gas and the oil 
facilities and plants down in the south. So there have been very few attacks of this kind by Islamist militants. What may have changed things is the spillover from the Libyan conflict a year and a half ago, and that weapons that were used during that conflict by Gaddafi's forces that were brought in by uh, the rebels have now been taken by some of these Islamist groups, giving them the capacity to carry out these sorts of attacks. So France went into Mali to dislodge Islamic extremists. Mali is Algeria's direct neighbor to the south. Both are former French colonies. Map out the rest of this dynamic for us between Algeria, Mali, and France. Well, Algeria obviously has a very difficult relationship with France. It was the colonial power France for many years. A nationalist movement got the French out in a very bitter war in the 50s and the 60s. And the hangover from that is that though there is a close relationship in many ways with France, it's a very difficult relationship. It's one which can inspire Islamists, particularly as we're seeing now, to turn their anger against the French. So this move by the French in Mali, those criticisms both inside France and, of course, outside in this region, in North Africa, that it was another venture by a colonial power, essentially, and that it would have this kind of blowback. The BBC's Arab Affairs editor, Sebastian Usher, thank you very much. Thank you. Here in the U.S. today, thoughts turn to the colonists who came here and their right to defend themselves, a right they enshrined in the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. That's because today, President Obama unveiled his proposals to curb gun violence. This is our first task as a society, keeping our children safe. This is how we will be judged. The president was speaking at the White House before a crowd, including parents of some of the children slain in Newtown, Connecticut, a month ago. He called on Congress to, among other things, reinstate the ban on military-style assault weapons. And he signed a number of executive orders to strengthen existing gun regulations. Obama also said America is the land of the free and always will be. But we've also long recognized, as our founders recognized, that with rights come responsibilities. Along with our freedom to live our lives as we will comes an obligation to allow others to do the same. We don't live in isolation. We live in a society, a government of and by and for the people. We are responsible for each other. America is not the only nation with a problem of violence. Russia has a problem, too, with a twist. Earlier today, I spoke with Fred Weir, Moscow correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor. Weir says Russia's laws on guns are pretty tough. They are extremely tight. I mean, just to obtain a hunting rifle is something of a bureaucratic nightmare. Handguns are completely illegal. I mean, private ownership of them. Uh, But like a lot of things in Russia, the law is formal. The police enforce it very stringently on the law abiding. But the criminal underworld runs amok and there's a black market in guns and you never see criminals without automatic weapons and so on. So Russia is not a very good example to compare with the United States. It is a country where law in general tends to be really tough and doesn't work. So you say handguns are completely illegal and yet the homicide rate in Russia is about twice that of the United States. What proportion of those homicides in Russia are gun-related? Not very many. Uh, Figures are not available for that. But Russia is a very violent society. Uh, Most of the murders here are the result of domestic disputes and so on. And the weapons tend to be kitchen utensils and axes and things like that, not guns. 
the Russia is a real complex society, extremely violent under the surface. And I don't think most of that has anything to do with gun control or the lack of it. So Russia is often touted by NRA types as an example of how a state becomes totalitarian when its population is disarmed. What would Russians say about that? Oh, I, I don't think I, I don't think they'd understand that point. This is a peculiarly American thing. You know, Russian autocracy, I believe, is about a thousand years old. It predates the existence of guns. Um, I don't, it's an interesting argument about how states become authoritarian and totalitarian. But I don't think Russians would entertain the argument that it's the lack of private gun ownership. So if you have a handgun in Russia, uh, does that necessarily mean that somehow or another that was obtained through the underworld? I think so, unless you're a police officer or one of these paramilitary types who have official status or security guard. I mean, there are a lot of armed people that you encounter on the streets of Moscow who have some sort of official or semi-official status. Not just handguns, but Kalashnikov rifles and so on. Even supermarket security guards tend to be heavily armed. So there are a lot of guns around, but not in private hands. And the average citizen wouldn't know how to get one. Um, Fred, for you, what's the one takeaway message uh, for U.S. lawmakers from Russia's relationship to guns? I mean, what would it be? Um, I think I think Americans, when they debate this subject, don't recognize or admit that they they are also an extremely violent society. I, I'm personally Canadian, and 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 the murder rate in the United States is seven times what it is in Canada. Never mind what kind of weapons people choose to do it with. Uh, the United States is an extremely violent society, and their way of expressing it is with guns. Uh, Russia is an extremely violent society in its way. Uh, other societies like Canada and Britain and so on are way less violent. Uh, so it's not mainly about guns. It's about the violence and how you deal with the violence and uh, limit it. It's about the culture of violence uh, that it seems to be endemic, and, and societies are very, very different. Yeah, hard to compare them. Fred Weir, Moscow correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor, speaking with us from Russia. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Now from gun safety to airline safety, a Boeing 787, better known as the Dreamliner, was forced to make an emergency landing in Japan today. The domestic all-Nippon Airways flight was diverted after a cockpit warning indicated battery problems. A burning smell was also detected in the cockpit and cabin. It's a blow to Boeing and to Japanese airlines. Even before they got their Dreamliner fleets, they were showing off the sleeping beds in public, allowing people to try them out. But as the world's Clark Boyd reports, technical problems have shadowed the Dreamliner since its launch. Fuel and oil leaks, electrical fires, cracked windows and faulty brakes. Those are just a few of the problems Boeing's Dreamliners have experienced since the first commercial flight of the aircraft in the fall of 2011. In the latest case, it appears to be a battery problem. An inspection of the Al Nippon plane that was forced to land found leaks and burn marks around the main battery, located below the cockpit. No one was injured in the emergency landing. But at a news conference in Tokyo today, Al Nippon's VP, Osamu Shinobe, bowed deeply and apologized. We are extremely sorry for causing concern to the passengers, their families and those involved. We are sorry. For the time being, we have decided to ground all of our 787 aircraft as of today. The company said it would resume using the aircraft after a full investigation. Japan Airlines also grounded its fleet of seven Dreamliners today. 
Close to 50 of the aircraft are in service across the globe. For Boeing, the string of problems with the Dreamliner is at odds with the way it's touted the new jet. The Boeing 787 Dreamliner has had the most successful new aircraft launch in commercial aviation history. And for good reason. It's a super-efficient airplane that applies the most advanced technologies in aerospace. Part of that advanced technology is a strong reliance on electrical systems to fly the plane. And the electrical systems need, well, power. The aircraft uses rechargeable lithium-ion battery packs. But a week ago, a battery pack in an empty Japan Airlines Dreamliner caught fire at Logan Airport here in Boston. U.S. aviation authorities are currently investigating that. Outside of Japan, airlines that are flying Dreamliners stood behind Boeing. The Polish airline LOT said today it will continue flying the aircraft from Warsaw to the U.S. The low-cost Singapore airline Scoot currently has an order for 20 Dreamliners. CEO Campbell Scott said that order won't be affected by the current issues, which he called a flash in the pan. We simply don't know enough about the issues to really make a judgment call. So I'd prefer to say that you know, we're confident in the aircraft, we're confident in the delivery schedule, we're confident in the process that is being followed. For its part, Boeing has called the latest incidents teething problems. The company says that any new aircraft goes through them in its early days in service. But aviation expert Thomas Ballantyne says Boeing needs to move, and move quickly, to restore confidence in the Dreamliner. Certainly new aircraft always do have teething problems, as it were. Uh, things go wrong in a brand new aeroplane, and, and they get sorted out. But this is more than that. I mean, there are too many things happening, and in different areas of the aircraft, than it to be simply teething problems. And so better safe than sorry, say Al Nippon and Japan Airlines. Aviation expert Chris Yates says the two Japanese carriers made the right call in grounding the planes for now. You know, both of those airlines operate very long-haul flights with the aircraft, typically trans-Pacific, and the opportunity to divert if uh, indeed there is an issue on board the aircraft when you're mid-Pacific, the alternate airfields are um, few and far between. But Yates says air travelers shouldn't get too worked up about the Dreamliner's recent problems. Yes, there are issues, he says, and they're being dealt with. He says he has confidence in the airline authorities and in Boeing. And he adds, quote, I have relative comfort getting aboard a Dreamliner myself. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. Still ahead on the program, lots of soot. It's not good for your lungs or the warming of the planet on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The end of the Vietnam War in 1975 marked the start of a wave, an immigration wave from Vietnam to the United States. And like many who've experienced war, some Vietnamese now living in America don't like to talk about the past much. But one group of college students in California is trying to draw out some of those memories through a storytelling project. From station KPCC in Los Angeles, Roxandra Guidi has that story. We're at the University of California, Irvine, near Los Angeles, sitting in on a course called the Vietnamese American Experience. Professor Tui Vo Dong holds class inside a temporary trailer on the overcrowded campus. It's a small, warm room. It makes you drowsy. Students are nodding off. Others didn't do their homework. What instance do you see? I can give you a little hint. 
Today, Professor Dang is discussing a short story she's assigned her students about a young Vietnamese refugee in America and his efforts to fit in. Dang asks questions, but the students keep quiet. Maybe because the story seems foreign to many of them. They were all born in the United States. But Dang has figured out a way to wake her class up, getting students, many in the class are of Vietnamese descent, to turn to their own relatives for their stories. Sophomore Vince Vu was born in the States, but his parents came as refugees in 1975 during the first wave of Vietnamese migration after the Vietnam War and the fall of Saigon. Vu always wanted to interview his dad. In this class, he says, is the push to do just that. You know, at first it was easy because my parents are older and I think they wanted to get their story out somehow. The hard part was trying to get them to remember certain things, um, racial segregation, stuff like that, specific stories. Vu struggled to squeeze details from his dad, and he isn't the only one here trying to get older generations to open up, even if they've been living in the U.S. for decades. Even Professor Dang, who runs the university's Vietnamese-American Oral History Project, finds it tough to get her dad to speak candidly about his life, especially during wartime Vietnam. When it comes to private life and home space, that's where we see the silences and the ghostly haunting of the Vietnam War. Recent studies confirm that. Researchers at UC Irvine say that Vietnamese who came as political refugees suffer from higher rates of mental health problems than white Americans. Depression, anxiety, and a fear to get medical help can also run rampant among the older generations. If you think about, you know, refugee trauma and refugee experience, people have left everything behind and have, um, you know, gone through really terrifying experiences in order to build a new life, a better life. And what that actually means is that the new home space that they create is really incompatible for these sorts of stories to emerge. But Dang says that young Vietnamese Americans want to hear these stories and that after they stop clamming up, older Vietnamese are eager to share. Around what age did you come to the United States? I came as about maybe nine or ten years old. Nine or ten? Yeah. Earlier this spring, student Andrew Lamb interviewed 40-year-old Christopher Phan, a local city council member, a lawyer, and a former Navy officer. I still remember my first time stepping in near the United States was in the dead of winter. And we had our first snowstorm. And um, it was just phenomenal. You know, I'd never seen snow in my entire life. That was awesome. Following oral history protocol, Lamb took field notes. He smiled for a majority of our conversation, Lamb wrote. And rather than an interview, it seemed more like a conversation amongst friends. Was there anything you missed from Vietnam? Oh, yes. I really missed the durian fruit. And I, I don't know if you're familiar, Andrew, but durian is either very aromatic to some and very pungent to others. But uh, I am a huge fan of that, and I can eat, you know, five, six perhaps in one sitting if you would let me. Aren't they like this they big? They are big. Yep. It's the specky fruit, right? Yes, 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 yes. yes. It's a smelly one. <laughs> in Fan's oral history, he also talks about how he used to collect crickets as a young child in Vietnam and how he served as a Navy attorney in Fallujah, Iraq. He also talks about the Vietnam War, how his family's political involvement led to their persecution and the confiscation of their property, and what it means to him to be Vietnamese-American. The story archive is still growing, 
So far, it contains oral histories from Guyan Ti Han Nan, a great-grandmother in her 90s who trained female soldiers. Ha Beach Van, the head chef of a successful Vietnamese-French fusion restaurant in California, and Tang Gak Guyan, who escaped Vietnam by boat in 1982 and passed through refugee camps in Malaysia and the Philippines before arriving in the U.S., Many of the stories are told mixing Vietnamese and English and are now available online. For The World, I'm Ruxandra Guidi, Los Angeles. You can hear more of the Vietnamese oral histories collected by the students in California. We've posted a few at theworld.org. And while you're there, check out another project that also collects stories from immigrants. This one's based in New York, and it's called the Endangered Language Alliance. Director Daniel Kaufman says there are as many as 800 languages from around the globe spoken in the Big Apple. Some of them are no longer spoken in their countries of origin, perhaps not spoken anywhere but New York right now. Kaufman's particular interest is New Yorkers from Mexico. There were so many indigenous Mexicans working here, and nobody really um, communicates with them, actually, outside of their community. At one point, I think it was... uh, some Christmas party at the restaurant where my wife was uh, waitressing. After a few beers, I just said, all right, let me ask one of these guys if they know anybody who speaks uh, an indigenous Mexican language. And the guy said, I do. (laughs) I'm a Mixteco, and I speak one of the Mixtec dialects. So this really means that if the first person I asked speaks Mixteco, then probably at least half of them speak their own language. And it seems that, you know... Many people are getting all kinds of grant money to go to Mexico and do these projects. How come nobody's working with, uh, you know, the thousands and thousands of people who are here? And you can hear more about Daniel Kaufman's Endangered Language Alliance at theworld.org. For our GeoQuiz, we head to Haiti, where an unusual event is taking place. It's a combination flash mob, religious pilgrimage, and parade. It's called Kita Nago. That much we know. But what exactly is this Kitanago, and where is it going? Participants say they're walking across Haiti from the western tip of Haiti's southern peninsula all the way to the country's northeast corner. Their goal is to reach a city along the border with the Dominican Republic. And that's the city we want you to name. Along the way, Kitanago is generating a buzz. The night that it's spent in Port-au-Prince, the president of Haiti, politicians, dancers, musicians, people from the town, thousands and thousands of people are partaking in this new ritual. Some Haitians say this new ritual symbolizes national unity. We'll explore that idea and name the Haitian town where the procession is headed later in the program. Headlines are coming up next. This is The World on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on The World, soot. It's a major contributor to global warming, but often overlooked. And later, a French guitarist finds inspiration in the vastness of the American desert. It takes your skin away. It's psychic, you know. It takes, it peels you like an onion, you know, so and it comes like right in the center. 
PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. We want change! We want change! We want change! They want to throw the bums out. Sounds like Washington. But these demonstrators calling for change today were in Islamabad, Pakistan. This was the third day in a row that protesters took to the streets of Islamabad to demand the resignation of the Pakistani government. They accuse the government of being corrupt, and they want an interim government to take over while a new election is organized. The protesters are followers of a Muslim cleric named Tahir al-Qadri. It's the beginning of a revolution, of reforms, of an end to vote rigging, which will bring transparency, accountability, and eligibility of the candidates. This should be done now, not after the election. Tahir al-Qadri is frequently described in the press as a firebrand cleric, but that phrase doesn't convey what an unusual figure Qadri is. Shamila Chowdhury is Senior South Asia Fellow at the New America Foundation and has been following Qadri's movements. Tell us, first of all, Shamila, who Tahir al-Qadri is and why he is such an unconventional politician in Pakistan terms. Well, Qadri uh, was a politician in the 80s in Pakistan, and he left politics in protest of the rampant corruption and bad governance that plagued it and uh, moved to Canada and became a Canadian citizen. Um, But at the same time, he had started uh, a large religious organization in Pakistan, which is um, rumored to have thousands of schools and a large following. Um, And so he's been maintaining this organization from Canada. Um, He himself is uh, fairly conservative, but not provocative and not very closely aligned with the jihadist mentality that we see um, strong in Pakistan right now. Um, He himself is uh, fairly educated, um, is a constitutional law professor, has studied American and British law. So this is someone who's extremely knowledgeable about the world and is trying to mesh uh, modern values um, in business and financial affairs with conservative Islam. Um, He's not just appealing to this kind of radical, um, small, kind of two percent groups and individuals who who kind of align themselves with more conservative militant organizations. Mm. I mean, just an example, a couple of examples of how unconventional uh, Qadri is. I mean, he preaches a progressive form of Islam embracing women's rights. He's uh, written a long, detailed fatwa condemning terrorism as un-Islamic. He's even gone on a peace tour with uh, people from uh, arch, arch rival, arch enemy India. So how compatible are these things with conservative Islam? I think it's extremely compatible. I mean, I don't, I don't think that, 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 that's not the confusion that's affecting the situation right now. The confusion is actually, why has he arrived right now at this moment? And why is he calling for regime change? If he, in fact, is pro-democracy, like he says, and wants legitimate democratic change in Pakistan, he, you know, he should let the government finish its term. And it's a, a very historic moment um, for civilian leadership in Pakistan. If the PPP can finish its term, it will be the first ever government in Pakistan's history to be uninterrupted by mm. uh, military rule or uh, extra constitutional measures 
to to get rid of it. And so I, I actually question his his motives um, and his agenda. Um, if in fact he's uh, pro democracy, um, this government needs to finish its term so all the political actors and stakeholders can understand what it means to have a peaceful transfer of power. Well, um, and he's just coming in and interrupting that entire process. I was going to ask you how popular is Kadri? I mean, is there a chance he could make a difference? I think that we're already seeing that his march has generated a fair bit of momentum to make a difference. Um, you, so, and then you have, I think, some some parts of the political establishment with, amongst the political parties who are also curious about this and they're waiting to see what what comes of this. What, what I think is actually going to happen is that the government is likely to respond to some of this pressure. It's pretty significant. And the images of people, you know, spending the night in the streets, and there have been reports of unprecedented numbers of women and children in the streets protesting. I mean, these are pretty significant. And uh, I don't think that the government wants the international media to focus on these too much. As to those protests uh, where there are women and children out in the streets, uh, the protests that Kadri is leading, what do you make of the fact that we're seeing a different side of Pakistan, a different demographic out protesting? I think it was inevitable that we were going to see this in Pakistan for you know for at least a decade now. The the international media has overwhelmingly focused on the counterterrorism problem in Pakistan, which is a very real issue, but it's been at the expense of kind of these uh, democratic forces and the evolution that's been happening in the country, and it's been independent of the counterterrorism issue and of the United States and of the war in Afghanistan. And I think what we're seeing in the streets you know, this month means that there are actually ordinary Pakistanis that are also eager for change, and they want to see their country move forward, um, and they're sick and tired of status quo politics. Well, Shamila Chowdhury with the New America Foundation, thanks so much for telling us about Tahir Al-Qadri. Appreciate it. Thank you. Tensions between Pakistan and neighboring India have been high over the past few weeks. Their long-running dispute over the contested region of Kashmir flared up unexpectedly this month. Five soldiers, three Pakistanis and two Indians, have been killed since the beginning of the year in a series of cross-border skirmishes. Today, the two countries pledged to ease tensions, but when it comes to Kashmir, tensions and violence have been part of the landscape for decades, and that's caused many residents of the region to flee. Two decades ago, almost the entire Hindu minority in the Indian-controlled Kashmir Valley picked up and left. Now some are returning, as reporter Hillary Brenhaus found out. Sacred music like this has been scarce here over the past two decades. It's a Hindu devotional song. For centuries, upper-caste Hindus known as Kashmiri pundits lived alongside the region's majority Muslim community. They share traditions of food and poetry, even certain holy sites. They visited each other's homes, celebrated each other's marriages. But in 1989, Islamic militants began an insurgency against the Indian government. The pundits were easy targets. Anti-Hindu rhetoric was broadcast at weekly prayers. Dozens were murdered. Virtually overnight, some 400,000 pundits fled, mainly to the Hindu-dominated town of Jammu, a precarious seven-hour drive away. In most cases, they simply locked their houses and left, imagining they'd return in a few weeks or months. But years passed and the violence never let up. Early government efforts to bring the pundits back were met with often violent resistance. But now the Indian government is trying again. In the last three years, attacks in Kashmir have been infrequent. Tourism is booming. 
Chief Minister Omar Abdullah of the state of Jammu and Kashmir says this is the time to put things right for the pundits. They left because their sense of security was taken away from them. I believe they will only really come back when that sense of security is restored. And that's what we're aiming to do. In 2008, Indian Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, with the Kashmiri administration, announced that 6,000 coveted government jobs in the valley would be made available to young pundit migrants. Since 2010, nearly 1,500 of those posts have been filled by men and women who were born here, but who have only vague memories of this place. Every Kashmiri pundit is missing our motherland. Every Kashmiri pundit. Among them is Anil Sapru, a pundit in his late 20s. He was six when his family left for the city of Jammu. Like many returnees, he has mixed emotions about being back in Kashmir. Sapru's father was shot and killed by Islamic militants. I will not forget that time. Time and day. This was the saddest day of my life. And my mother's too. Sapru has been given a government teaching job at a small village school on the outskirts of Srinagar city. He is the school's only pundit instructor. All of its students are Muslim. The school stands less than 10 miles from where Sapru's father was gunned down. This is our headmaster's office. And this is our lab, computer lab. Despite painful memories and a fear of renewed violence, young pundits like Sapru are eager to take advantage of the prime minister's plan. Most held private sector jobs before they returned to the valley. But in Indian Kashmir, government work brings an almost unheard of stability. Fixed hours, generous holidays, retirement benefits and job security. These advantages are particularly meaningful to the members of a community that lost everything. But it isn't easy to be back. The Kashmiri government puts the migrants up in dormitories, sometimes assigning half a dozen people to one apartment. The nearby houses where they were born sit vacant and decayed. And almost all the returnees have left their families behind in Jammu, a more developed city with quality schools and an existent nightlife. Still, Sapru and the others feel a profound connection to Kashmir, to the lakes and snowy mountains of their childhoods. We feel both are our homes. We are born here, then it is our motherland. We are growing there, that is our motherland. Both places are good, and both places are good for me. Sapru was born in a five-story house surrounded by orchards. He lives now in a single room in a pundit temple complex. But he's grateful even for that, to be among Kashmiri Hindus in a place of prayer. Evenings at 7.30, they gather to sing to the divine, a growing number of returnees bound in their religion, their nostalgia, and their ambivalence. For The World, I'm Hilary Brenhaus, The Kashmir Valley, India. Return to the Kashmir Valley. Hillary sent us pictures from her trip. The slideshow's at theworld.org. Remember the blanket of smog that smothered Beijing a few days ago? It caused a massive public health crisis, not to mention a wave of anger across the city. A big part of the problem was soot from diesel exhaust and coal smoke. And the nasty effects of soot aren't just a problem for the residents of Beijing. Soot is also a huge contributor to global warming. So says a new scientific study that came out yesterday. The world's environment editor, Peter Thompson, is here now. So a lot of people have been suffering the health effects of soot for decades, Peter, all the way back to the Victorian era and Charles Dickens in England. Now the whole planet is feeling the effects as well. Explain this. 
Yeah, well, scientists have known for a long time that soot has a, a pretty powerful warming effect on the atmosphere. Um, some of that's fairly simple physics. Soot particles are black. In fact, another term scientists use for soot is black carbon. And it can have a lot of surface area, so it just absorbs a lot of light and heat that might otherwise be radiated back into space. But there's been a lot of uncertainty over just how much soot from things like diesel engines and the burning of things like wood and coal contributes to climate change. Well, now a group of nearly 30 scientists from around the world has done an exhaustive analysis. And pardon the pun, but it's actually an apt description of a report that runs 230 pages in the latest issue of the Journal of Geophysical Research. So they've done this exhaustive analysis of sources and impacts of soot, and they found that at least in the short run, soot particles are the second biggest source of global warming today. Wow. Number two in impact after carbon dioxide and twice as big an impact as most climate scientists had figured before. Double the impact. That's shocking. Well, yes and no. Like I said, this is something that scientists have been concerned about for a long time, but they've had a hard time pinning down the details because the science of soot and what produces it is extremely complex. And I should add that this study still leaves a lot of those questions unanswered. But having said that, at least one prominent scientist had ballparked soot as the number two contributor to global warming as far back as 2008. A lot of folks said then that his study was way too limited to be useful, but this study clearly vindicates that one in a big way. So now that we know this, Peter, how does it help us? I mean, what can we do with this information? Well, it tells us a couple of things. One is that one of the biggest contributors to global warming, at least in the short term, is relatively easy to deal with. So it, like you said, it's sort of that classic industrial age pollution. You mentioned Victorian England where smog from factories. It's sort of the iconic image of the industrial revolution. It comes from burning coal and, and diesel fuel. Another big source is wood smoke from cook stoves and burning of forests in the tropics and elsewhere. And we know how to stop these things. Like they say, we have the technology. I mean, there's clear evidence of this in the fact that soot emissions are way down in the Western world, but still very high in developing countries. The difference is technology. So compared to the challenges of cutting carbon dioxide and methane pollution, which we're clearly having a very hard time dealing with, getting rid of most of the world's sources of soot would be a fairly simple fix. One of the authors of this study called it a no-brainer, and it could reduce the rate of warming in the atmosphere at least a bit and buy us some time while we deal with those bigger challenges. And of course, there would be huge public health benefits, I would imagine. Yeah, that's the second thing. And another reason the study author called getting rid of this stuff a no-brainer. It's kind of an environmental twofer. In fact, um, that scientist I mentioned earlier who did the study in 2008 on the warming effects of soot, his mm. name is V. Ramanathan. And our science correspondent, Ritu Chatterjee, reported a couple of years ago on his efforts to introduce new cook stoves to rural communities in India right. as a way to hit those two birds with one stone, to cut down on respiratory diseases locally, but also really reduce global soot pollution. So this study really drives home the dual benefits of getting rid of those sources of soot. All right. The World's Environment Editor, Peter Thompson. Thank you. You're welcome, Marco. And we have a link to that new study on soot and climate, all 232 pages of it on the web. You can also hear Ritu Chatterjee's story on soot and cookstoves in India. That's all at theworld.org. Also on The World Tomorrow, a story about change in Saudi Arabia. For the first time in the kingdom, women have seats in the top legislative council. One of the new members says it took a royal decree to make it happen. A decision from above is always more successful than leaving it for people to haggle about. And in the end, you know, it takes forever because people never agree. You can hear our conversation with one of the first women on Saudi Arabia's Shura Council tomorrow right here on The World. This is PRI.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For our GeoQuiz, we asked you what Kita Nago is and where it's headed. The answer takes us to Haiti, where an unusual procession is underway. Some participants help to carry the 1,000-pound Kita Nago. Others walk along praying or playing music. Journalist Kathy Clarich has just returned from Haiti. And Kathy, help us out here. First of all, what is this Kita Nago? Kita Nago is a piece of wood that uh, has been shaped somewhat like a cross. It's been tied with rope, weighs, I don't know, about a thousand pounds or so, that a couple guys decided in December they were going to carry this in a relay from Lazy Wa, which is in the south western part of the country, all the way to Wanamet, which is in the northeast part of the country. And they've been at it now for about 16 days. So Wanamet is the final destination of the Kitanago in Haiti, and that is the answer to the GeoQuiz today, Wanamet. I was going to ask you how long this tradition has been going on, but these guys just invented it out of the blue. No one really understands exactly. Uh, it, in other words, you can put whatever meaning you want to on it. There is a Haitian expression which says, which sort of means I'm not going to go left, I'm not going to go right, I'm just going to stay exactly where I am, I'm not going anywhere. So in some way, this is the exact opposite of that, which is that we are going somewhere, we're going to carry the weight of Haiti on our shoulders, we're going to do it in a united, collaborated fashion. So as this cross is being carried from village to village across Haiti, I mean, do people come out in the streets and touch it? I mean, what? how do Haitians respond to this giant piece of wood? Oh, Marco, you have to see it. It's become a phenomenon. Uh, I mean, it was called a relay, but what it's done is it's just mobilized people. So every step along the way, you've got huge crowds. It's become really a happening. You've got people dancing. uh, You've got music out there. Everyone wants a little piece of it. And the idea really is sort of just collaboration. Well, listeners can get a taste of this uh, wild phenomenon at theworld.org. I mean, it's got to be a surreal sight, uh, Kathy, these Haitians schlepping around this heavy wooden cross across the country. How do they explain their message or the purpose of this procession? Well, you know, when I talked to them uh, the other night when they were putting it to bed in Port-au-Prince, everybody has sort of their own interpretation. The leaders, the people who came up with this idea, said they wanted it to be a way to unify people. And I think three years after the earthquake, People have said we lost some of the unity that we had when everyone was helping everyone else out. And so the symbolism of this, I think, is we can do this ourselves. We can collaborate, work together, and fix what's become sort of a, uh, an even more dysfunctional country than it's been. Do you think it will serve its purpose to bring that unity and, and, and change some things in Haiti? I don't know, honestly, Marco, in the long term, what this will do. But right now, every day where the, the cross is taken, where this big piece of wood, and, and they do just call it the wood if they don't call it Kitanago, everywhere it goes, it is bringing people together. So at least in this period right now, which in Haiti you can't say much more, it is acting really as a unifying happening. Journalist Kathy Claritz, thanks very much for telling us about the Kitanago and the answer to our GeoQuiz today, Wanament in Haiti. Appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Stéphane Rembel has been a top player in guitar circles for a while now. He was born in France, but now makes his home in Brooklyn, in New York. And it was an American film that propelled him to wider fame, one that has a strong French flavor, just like Rembel. It was Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. Stéphane Rembel wrote the movie's theme, Bistro Fado.
Here's the world's Alex Galifant. Most people, when they hear music like this, they might think Django, as in Django Reinhardt. Django, who was born in Belgium and died in France, pretty much invented this style of guitar playing. But Stéphane Rembel doesn't get the comparison. When people talk to me about Django, I'm just like, are you sure you ever listen to Django? Because it's completely different. That's a little disingenuous. You can hear that Rembel is clearly the inheritor of a tradition. In fact, his own website says he built his reputation as a Django stylist. It's an easy way to identify him, an anchor. When you hear Rembel play, the Django lineage makes sense, especially when you learn that he spent years with Roma guitarists in their camps outside Paris, in Django's backyard. When you hear the gypsies playing the guitar, you know that they are doing something right. Rembel got his foundations, his technique, from playing classical music. But in between the lines, there is a meaning, there is life. And that life, you can't explain it, and it, it passes on from person to person. Now, getting access to the Roma musicians wasn't easy. He had to be humble and respectful. Then after a while, they start recognizing that maybe uh, you're not a jerk. So Stefan Rembel has a conundrum. The most well-known of his music, arguably the most crowd-pleasing too, turns on that Django Gypsy connection. But as he shows on his recent album, Origins, there is much, much more. He wrote this track, The Voice from the Desert, after a trip to New Mexico and Arizona. There is silence and vastness and it takes your skin away. It's psychic, you know, it takes, it, it peels you like an onion, you know, so and it comes like right in the center. In the desert, he didn't play guitar. Music is a bridge. It's a bridge between people, between silences. So when you're in the desert, you have no, you don't need a bridge between you and the desert through music. You're actually gonna create pollution. Origins features other Impressionist compositions. His subjects include the Tsunami in Japan and the spacecraft Voyager. It's a rich collection of styles and impressions. You can hear the time he spent with musicians from North Africa and India. You can tell he studied jazz in the States and that he loves rock guitar as much as the music of Ravel. And you can hear Django. One other image from my chat with Stefan Rembel. We were talking about making the guitar resonate, finding that perfect communion between player and instrument. He compared it to something his boxing trainer told him years ago. You know, when you hit the bag, you have to hit like, and you have to go inside the bag. He said, I cannot explain. And I think it's the same, the same area, you know, like whatever you do, there is that place where when you hit the bag, you go inside the bag go inside the bag, but get outside the Django box. That's the challenge for Stefan Rembel. For The World, I'm Alex Galafent in New York.
We have video of Stefan Rimbell performing live right in the bag. That's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for tuning in. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.